Your commands, they bring us true joy. Your promises bring us true peace. And your words are the words of eternal life. We ask that your Holy Spirit impress upon us the sufficiency and authority of your word over our entire being. Help us that as we listen and heed your word, that we would submit our minds and our affections to your holy will. Help us to seek the things that are above, cause us to be transformed by the renewal of our minds according to your word. These commands that we've read today, convict us by them. They are the way of the cross, and yet they are the way of life. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We pray all of this in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, the title today, as you saw, is Whose Servant Will You Be? Whose Servant Will You Be? And now in our society today, in our independent and stubborn-spirited day, the answer to that for most will be no one's, nobody's. I am going to be nobody's servant. I'm independent, self-sufficient. I do what I want, when I want, how I want, where I want, and right on down the line, right? Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I've got my rights, and on we go, right? It's about our own autonomy. But the truth is, folks, you're going to serve something or someone. Uh, we're going to serve something or someone. Uh, even the pseudo-theologian Bob Dylan understood this concept. Right? In his song, when he said, you're going to serve, you have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And th these are the exact basic words of Paul. I don't know if Bob Dylan was inspired by Romans. I, I don't think so, but the truth is truth. And, and he is right on target with what Paul says today, right? Our world mistakenly thinks. This is a, a problem with every one of us. But our world mistakenly thinks that if they can just throw off the, the oppression and the oppressive bonds of biblical morality, that, man, they could finally be free. They'd be free. That's what Psalms 2 is all about. Really, when you think about this, Psalms 2, 1 through 3 is just a synopsis of our world and the heart of mankind against God and his morality. We want to be free to do what we want to do. Look what it says. Verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let us be free from this religious fanaticism. Let us be free from this religiosity and rules and regulations and commands. Let's just be done with that. And then false prophets actually within the church, false teachers actually tell people in quote churches that you don't have to obey any law. You don't have to do anything. Grace, man, you just do whatever you want. There is no law. There is no need to be under any moral restraint. You're free. Free to be true to yourself. And yet 2 Peter 2, 18 and 19 talks about these false teachers. Look what it, look what it says here. For speaking loud boasts of folly, foolishness is what that is, 
Speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whoever overcomes a person, whoever rules a person, to that he is enslaved. And again, this is what we have to understand. We are never free unto ourselves. I mean, this is, this is we have to understand, right? I know that free will is a big cry among human beings. Free will, I have my free will. I'm free to choose whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. To which I have to answer, are you? And am I? And are we? <laughs> are we really free in our will? It's interesting, isn't it, to think about when, when we think about what will is. What's another word for our will? It's our desires, right? Our desires govern our will. And our desires, which come from our heart, are deceitful, the Bible says. The heart is deceitful above all things. Desperately wicked. Our desires, folks, our wills, may not be as free as we like to think they are. Spurgeon put it like this. I like what he says here. He says, free will I have often heard of, but I have never seen it. I have met with will and plenty of it, but it has either been led captive by sin or led in blessed bonds of grace. Do you see now the concept? Our wills are in bondage to something, either sin or Christ. But really, technically, folks, nobody's will is totally free. We're following something. We're following somebody. We're pledged our affections and our desires are, are given to something. And what Paul's going to tell us today, whatever that something is, is our master. And we are its slave. We're not free to do anything that we want to do. We are in bondage to something at all times. This is, I know, we say, wow, what a tough, tough concept, especially in our day and age. Well, it'll get tougher as we read here a little bit, but I hope then it'll get better. That's the idea of preaching. Have you noticed yet? Have you, for those that have been coming for a while, have you noticed as we get into a text and we preach, we always see there seems to be this kind of bad news <laughs> that we're not what we thought we were, and we're a lot worse than we thought we were. And then we get kind of down on ourselves, right? And we realize that we should be because there's a holy God who is also contrary to our actions, his, his holiness despises our actions, and we are now under his wrath. That's a bad place to be. But then the good news, especially here in the book of Romans, is what Paul is setting up, that we who were godless have been made just by faith alone in Christ. And we are now adopted into his family. We are now not what we once were, and now we have a new master. And that, folks, is good news. Let us notice some of this today as Paul breaks this down beginning in verse 14 where we ended last week, but it's important that we look at this because it sets up what we're going to see this week. So what does verse 14 say? It says, for sin will have no dominion over you. Glorious promise. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under 
law, but under grace. Kuriuse, that word dominion, kuriuse. It's again that, that, that word that would mean to be master of. So let's read it. Again, this is the language that Paul's been using now. And it fits right into to being dominated by a, a king or ruled by somebody, a master over you. And, and the promise here is that sin will not be master over you since you're not under law, but under grace. So glorious looking to the future, looking to our glorification here. And the first way we can read this verse is future, right? The fact that we know that there will be a time when sin has no dominion over us. We know that's in glorification. There will be no presence of sin. We won't ever be tempted again. We, we won't even have a capacity to sin. It's just gone. So we know that will happen. But I'm saying also, what we're going to see in these verses, is it's not just about glorification. That is a promise we understand. But the promise we're going to see, especially in these verses today, is also for now. Sin does not have to rule your life now because we are under grace, not under the dictates of the law and its heavy demands and punishments for not being perfect. In that sense, we're free from that law, the, the condemnation, and we're under the grace of God. Now let's look at this. If we're not, and here's the question that develops, much like verse 1, Paul's kind of repeating himself here to make a point. The question will be, okay then, if we're not under the law's demands anymore, and we're under grace, and sin is not, you know, that, that master over us, then maybe, what's the matter then if I sin a little bit? If I'm under grace? It's kind of that question again. Well, since I'm under grace, what does it matter if I sin? Can't we still sin? And verse 15, Paul answers, What then are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. So we, that sounds just like verse 1 when they said, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul said the same thing. By no means. Now here's the thing. When we're, we are a church that would be known as a church that preaches grace. We preach grace. And when you preach grace, there can be some complications. <laughs> there can be some problems. When we preach grace, there can be some misunderstandings when, when we preach grace. There are two extremes that develop in a, in a church that can develop in a church that preaches grace. And one of those extremes would be this, that we think that it will lead to licentiousness, licentiousness, that, that it will lead to more sin. So because of that, we invent cultural rules and non-biblical commands to keep people in line. It's a subliminal thing in some ways. It's so, it's so counter, it's so funny to think. A church preaching grace, and yet they become the most legalistic church on the block. Why? Because in the back of their mind, they're thinking, well, if we preach grace, we better come up with some rules that keep people from sinning because they're going to be tempted because, well, we're, we're saved by grace, so I can do what I want. No, we have this rule, and that rule, and this rule, and this rule, and you've got to look like this and dress like this. And you can't smoke cigarettes, and you can't uh, drink beer, and you can't go to the movies, and you can't wear this, and you can't do... See what I'm saying? And these, these, these we begin to just harp on, these visible, outward, legalistic, pharisaical-type laws that we can see on the outside. Those kind of churches rarely preach on sins of the heart, like greed, jealousy, bitterness, 
unloving, unforgiving. You, they don't preach on those things as much because they're focused on these little things outwardly that we can make sure not breaking any rules. So we're not sinning. It's still saved by grace. Really? So that's an extreme that we go to, trying to correct and say, make sure now that we're saved by grace, but here's some rules to keep just to make sure you're not falling into sin. That's one ditch or extreme that we got to watch when we're preaching grace, that we don't become legalistic even in that preaching of grace. But number two, the other extreme is that, well, since we're under grace, sin doesn't matter. I've already kind of touched on that, but this really does happen in some churches. We're under grace, so sin is just, it's, a, it's, a, it's just, you know, it just happens. It's part of the deal. Got to have sin so God can give us grace. So the approach to sin is really lackadaisical. It's very apathetic. It's almost like, yeah, yeah, we all sin. When somebody sins and they're batting with their sin, they're almost encouraging. Well, that's okay. We all do that. Don't worry. It's fine. God's grace, man. God's grace is good. It doesn't matter. That's literally the attitude in some churches that preach grace. Though they've gone to the other side of the, the extreme. So what's the answer? Well, let me say this before we go further. Grace is not the balance between the two extremes. That's another misunderstanding. Grace then doesn't say, well, let's have a little bit of this and let's bring a little bit of this back here and we'll live in a happy medium. No, grace is not the balance of those two extremes, but rather grace is the freedom from both. Grace is the total freedom from both of those extremes. Listen to what, what we see here. It, it, because here's the point. Grace does not cause us to sin more or cause us to keep a bunch of rules and regulations made by men. That's not what grace does. Grace liberates us to live a godly, joy-filled life. There's a huge difference there. And I think we see it a little bit in Titus 2, 11 through 12. Notice what we see here. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What does grace do then? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now be careful. This is not preaching against any particular pet sins here. It's not giving us some ammunition to set up all these man-made rules, nor is it giving us a pass to sin and follow the passions or desires of our hearts into sin. It's not saying that. Matter of fact, it's saying that grace actually trains us to renounce the ungodly passions of our hearts. And to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. Again, self-control simply means having control of yourself, having control of your passions, your desires, that they're not controlling you. Why? Because you've surrendered them to God. And this godly life, this upright life, simply means this freedom to, to live a fulfilled, flourishing life in the presence of God. It's not saying that I'm keeping certain rules or, or I'm doing exactly what my church says I should be doing. Now I'm, now I'm right because I keep these 20 rules that are the pet rules of our church. It's not saying that. What it's saying is I have surrendered my passions to Christ and he's my master and now I am in loving relationship with him. Living at peace 
Not under the fear of men. I'm telling you, folks, I grew up with this idea in some of these churches where you were miserable if you did not keep what brother so-and-so's church over here says you better be doing, and if you're doing what this guy says you should be doing, and you're, and you're living under man fear. And, and that is not freedom in Christ, folks. That's not what the gospel leads us to. There is a freedom in grace, not to sin, not to licentiousness, but to real, joyful, obedient life in Christ. So there's what we have to begin to understand about preaching grace. And Paul's helping us here. So the real question, so, so having said that, I hope we're understanding this. But the real question that determines whether or not you live that, just an upright, a, a, an upright, peaceful life. Isn't it something to know? There's something about knowing that I'm right with God. There's a joy there. Now, I'm not afraid of men at all. I do fear God because I respect and honor and reverence him who saved me. He's my king. But to be right with him. And now free from worrying about what anybody else says because I am, I am under the lordship of him. And I know, based on his word and his spirit, that I am living an upright and a godly life in his presence and by his grace. There is a peace, contentment, joy, fulfillment in obeying his commands now. And, and that is something that legalism can't give us, self-righteousness can't give us. And it's something that living in your sins and saying, God, forgive me more, that won't give it to you. No, it's this glorious truth of what grace does for us when we have surrendered to the master and lordship of, of Christ. So again, the real question that determines whether or not you live that upright life, that joyful life, depends on who you choose as your master. That's, that's the simplicity of this chapter, these, these verses that Paul's talking about. Whose slave will you be? Now, I'm going to use that word slave because that's the word doulos that they're using in the Bible. It has force. Even saying it in our day brings ire and, and irritation, right? And how could you say that? Don't use that word, slave. But there's a reason. We'll talk about that as we continue to look at this. But verse 16, look what Paul says. Do not, or do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, there's a lot of things we got to look at this. This is, this is an interesting verse, right? There's some strange things said here. The first one is, you think, wait a minute. Who in the world would, in, who in their right mind would present themselves to somebody as a slave? In the first place, you're asking yourself, right? Because that's what Paul said. Do you not know that he who presents himself to anyone as obedient slaves, to that person, that's whose slave you are, they're your master? And we think, wait a minute, that doesn't even make sense. And Greg, you keep using that word slave, and it's, it's bothering me, it's offending me, it's causing trauma, and you're on the wrong side of history. Stop using that word. That's because, again, number one, we've bothered some, some silliness, but I, I would say it's also because we don't understand the context here of what Paul's talking about. I mean, we're all selfish, and we live in our own context, the context of this era that we understand and know in our world. But folks, we're not, number one, obviously, talking about chattel slavery here. The Romans had a 
And this is what Paul's people that he's writing to fully understand. That's why this illustration makes sense to us today in its context. So that's why we're using it so strongly. Listen. The people of Paul's day understood that the Romans had a system that allowed for a person to sell themselves into slavery to someone if they were in debt and had no way of paying the, the, the bill or the, the, the debt, and they were going to lose everything, had nothing. Well, they then could go and sell themselves into slavery willingly, putting themselves under the servitude of someone else until the debt was paid. And that's the picture there that Paul is using. But the main point here is not if you're an obedient slave to a master. That's not even the main point Paul's making. All he's simply saying is whoever you're obeying and serving, that's your master. That's the point he wants us to understand. Whoever you are obeying in your life and whatever you are obeying and serving and desiring in your life, that is your master. And you are its slave. So if you're serving sin, he says, and obeying its every command, then sin is your master. On the other hand, if you are serving Christ and obeying his commands, he's your master. Some of this we have to sit back now and say, well, that's pretty common sense, isn't that? Pretty simple. It is, is it not? Obviously. Jesus said, if you love me, do whatever you want and I'll forgive you. Don't worry about it. Wink, wink. No. If you love me, keep my commandments. So you see, there is this total pushback in Scripture against any idea of free grace that says, well, I've saved you by my grace. You can do whatever you want, and the more you sin, the more grace I'll give because it'll make me look good. That's not it. What grace does is it frees us to put ourselves into servitude under Christ, be bound to, to him, a bond servant of Christ. And I want to keep his commands because I love him. My desires have been changed. The affections of my heart have been changed, and now I love to obey him who is my master. So the obedience of his commands, though, so I don't have to go around and say, Jesus is my master and have a t-shirt. I'm a slave of Jesus. And tell everybody, I won't have to do that because if I am obeying his commands, people obviously know he's my master. I don't have to say it. I'm obeying his commands. I'm, I'm living the proof, right? As they say, the proof is in the pudding, right? We can say I'm a Christian all day long, but what am I serving? Where's my love? Where's my desires? Where's my affections? What do I prioritize my life around? Whatever that is, folks, that's my master. That's what Paul's saying. So quick poll would reveal this, I guess. If I were to ask right now, people, where, where are you on that spectrum, folks? Where are we at today on the master? Who's your master? Where, where, where would you fall on that? And I just... No, that most people would respond by saying, well, somewhere in the middle, I guess. You know, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm quite a slave, slave to sin, but I guess I'm not totally slave to Christ either. You know, I'm somewhere in the middle. We like that. That's a natural default for humans. <laughs> Let's just stay right here <laughs> in the middle, in the nice compromise area of the middle. However, Paul does not give us that luxury today. He doesn't give us that option. He, he, it's just not an option. 
You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness, he says. But you can't be a slave to both. He said, that sounds so harsh. That's not very, you know, palatable to my, my senses. It's not very friendly. But it's harsh. But yet, what did Jesus say in Matthew 6, 24? Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot have two masters. It's just physically impossible. It doesn't make sense. I mean, even looking at slavery, a guy's serving his master here, and then all of a sudden he's, uh, he's, he's serving his master by going into town and, and getting some things, him and his master, he's carrying the stuff, and then he sees another slave, well, I'm going to go over here and help this master because I'm a slave, and slaves help masters. No, you don't just jump from this and that. You can't, you're under the bondage of one master. One master at a time. Yes, one master at a time. So who is your master at this present time in your life? That's what Paul's asking. So the question would be, wow, how then, how then, how then do I trans, transform or how do I transition from one master to the other, right? How do I change from being a slave to sin to being a slave to Christ? What do I have to do? What rules, Greg, do I have to keep? <laughs> what should I start doing and stop doing all these kind of things? We jump right to the legalistic part, right? To the man-made part, the man assistant. And we're going to assist you, God, in, in this. We, the answer to that question is, the answer to the question, what do I have to do to become a slave of Christ and not a slave to sin anymore? It's nothing. There's nothing we can do. But here it is. Only, and this is, what we must grasp. The only way is for God to set you free by changing your heart. That's the answer. The only way any of us are set free from the slavery is the sin that we were born under and become a slave to Jesus Christ, our master, is if he sets us free by changing our heart. This is what Paul says in verse 17 through 18 here in our text. Notice this. <sighs> but thanks be to God. <laughs> we see where he's going here, right? He's, he's remembering his own slavery, his own slavery to self-righteousness and religiosity. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a religious man above all. People looked at him and said, that's the most pious man I know. And yet he says, I was a slave to my self-worship, my reputation, my greed for power and fame, and people knew my name. It was all about me, and I was a slave to that. But, but thanks be to God, <laughs> I'm free from that. But thanks be to God, how? How? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the what? Heart. Not just obedient in your flesh. You see there? Here's where that 
quick, that, that very close distinction comes in about grace and, and how we become legalistic trying to keep rules to make sure we're still in grace. No, look, we do not just obey from the flesh a bunch of man-made rules on the outside. That's, 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 that's not what o- true obedience is. True obedience is from the heart. It always has been. It always will be. Even in the Old Testament, we always try to separate. Oh, the Old Testament was all about outward obedience and outward actions, and the New Testament's about the heart. False. Even when the law was given, it mentioned obedience from the heart. It's always been and always will be that true obedience is not obedience at all if it's not from the heart as well. So notice what they're obedient to from the heart. You're obedient to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Not which was committed to you, as some translations kind of, I think, wrongly give that Greek there. It's not about, okay, this was committed to you, now you're in charge of making this whatever you want it to be. No, you were committed to it. It now rules over you. The Word of God, the teachings of Christ as we see in the Word of God, rule over us. And there's where our hearts obey. We, from our hearts, say, yes, Lord. We see God revealed in his word. We see his, his rules, his commands, his statutes revealed. And from our heart now, we say, that's good. I obey that because it's good, not because I have to. Not because it's, I'm going to get judged if I don't from my people around me. Who cares? Once your heart is transformed, you could care less what anybody thinks. Your master is the only one you want to please now. And his commands are not burdensome. They're beautiful when the heart has been transformed by the gospel. So this is the glorious thing he's talking. So let me read this verse now without interrupting it. I'm sorry, but let me just read all these verses together, then we'll move on. But look at this. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. What a work of grace defined for us by Paul. The work of grace through the gospel is us being set free from the old master of sin and bondage to him. We are set free. The only way you can have a new master is to be set free from the old master. And that's what grace has done in Christ. He sets us free from the old master, Adam, and sin, and death. And now we are free to submit ourselves to the lordship of Christ. And he is our master. A new master. And, and, and so, so we, we learn from this that, that justification, right? Being proclaimed righteous by the work of Christ by faith. We believe in the perfection of Christ. His, his life, his death, his resurrection in our place. And by faith, when we believe in that, we are declared justified. Just as if I'd never sinned, but then sanctification. Now listen, this growing in Christ, now in this flesh, it becoming more and more like Christ, like we saw last week, putting off sin, putting on the the, the commands of Christ. So listen to this. Justification and sanctification is a supernatural acting of God upon our stony hearts. Get this in our minds. It, it, it frees us from what we grew up with as, as either Catholics 
or legalistic Baptist, I don't care, or Methodist, or church, or whatever you grew up with. It, we, we tend to run back to this legalistic idea that, okay, to be, to be sanctified and to be holy, I've got to do, 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 keep the list, and please everybody around me. And then when they say I'm good, then I'm good. No. I even heard this preached once back in the day. I don't know who did it, one of the preachers I was growing up under. He said, we're saved by grace and kept by works. What? No, Paul, that's not what Paul's saying at all. Justified by grace and sanctified by works, and yet that's the, the default mentality of humans, right? We think I've got to keep doing something. But yet Paul's saying very plainly, justification and sanctification, all of it is a supernatural working of God in our hearts. Because here's the point, folks, we'll never genuinely keep the commands of God unless our desires have been changed and now we love them. You can't make yourself love the commands of God. A lot of you grew up having to go to church. Time for church, get up. You didn't jump up. I, uh, when, you, when you're in the, you, you teenagers, good night, where am I going here? You partied all night, Saturday night did nothing in the way of keeping God's commands from the heart or anywhere else. And then you hear that next morning as your head is spinning, time for church, let's go. You do not jump up and say, glorious day, I will worship my King and Savior. <laughs> no. But you go because if you don't, the car's cut off, the car keys are taken away, you can't do this, can't do that. So I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. I'll, go. I'll do what I gotta do. And it may not just be all of us, even adults, folks. We went through these motions trying to please my grandmother and my mother and the people at church and this person and that person. And I got to just do these things. It's just a cumbersome weight. And there's no real love or joy. It's just I got to do this. Even the fear of I'll go to hell so I better do these things. It's not, that's not the action of a person who's been redeemed by the grace of God. In resting in his forgiveness, in living a joyful, upright life. That's the results of man made works. So, having said that, folks, the key is this. Here's the key our desires have to be changed. It's about our desires, our affections, our heart leads us where it wants to go because it's deceitfully wicked. So if our heart is not changed, we will continually follow into sin. Our heart's got to be changed. And we, and we know, not only know, and here's the key, we, 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 we not only know we should obey God's commands, but we desire to obey God's commands. When that happens, when my heart has been changed, I not only know I should obey God's commands, but now I desire you see the difference now? So the difference between that, that, that person who is just going through the motions, you know you got to do it. You know it's the right thing, but you don't desire it. You don't. I and mean, this is what I want us to be honest with today. You don't desire to keep the commands of God. It's not your desire. You do it because you're afraid or you, you want to please somebody else. So what we must do is pray, God, change my affections. Which is to say, change my heart. And this can only happen when God, through his grace, breathes life and, and does this, this 
this heart surgery of transplanting our hearts. And this has always been the case, folks. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27 is the greatest description of the, 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 the covenant of grace. What is God's covenant of grace? His plan of redemption, how he will save sinners. Look at this. And I will give you a new heart. That's the plan. <laughs> the plan of being redeemed and being made right with God and being transformed and being saved and all these regenerate, all the words we want to use. There's not a lot of steps, folks, on our part. <laughs> There's not a lot of boxes for us to check on our side. Here it is. I will give you a new heart. That's the plan. God, how can I be made right with you and how can I be looked upon as holy? I'll give you a new heart. How can I change my heart? You can't. I'll give you a new heart. That's it. Let's read it. I will give you a new heart and new spirit. I will put within you. I will put these new desires and affections in you. I'll give you this because I will give you the new heart. And he goes on to say, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Boom. Everything in that is about God doing something to me and for me. The only time I start obeying commands to please God is after he has given me the desire to keep those commands and given me the ability. He, it says, will cause me to walk in his statutes. Wow. And to be careful to obey them. That careful means to actually lovingly desire to obey them. They are tender to me now. They are precious to me now. I carefully treat them as the, 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 the gems that they are. They are God's promises to me that give me a flourishing and upright life when I walk in them. But the only way you're going to see that is if God has done this work. I like what Jonathan Edwards says. Jonathan Edwards says, True religion, in great part, consists in holy affections. Now, if you've ever read Jonathan Edwards and you hear these words, you're puzzled, maybe, because most of Jonathan Edwards' sermons are pretty tough. But you know what? If you look at the history and you read his life, he was a joy-filled man. He had a love and affection that side, and this is what he's saying. True religion, in great part, consists in holy affections. Feelings, if I dare say, in the Reformed Church, right? Feelings, affections, desires. That is to say, God changes our hearts and our desires, he says. We must understand the truth with our minds. That's a given. We still must understand the truth and hear the truth with our minds, but also our hearts must rejoice in and willingly embrace the truth. Mmm, glorious. David Platt said it like this. I, I, I love this. The way to conquer sin is not by working hard to change our deeds, but by trusting Jesus to change our desires. There it is again, said, said another way, same truth. To those whose hearts have 
not been changed by God's grace. They see following Jesus as ridiculous. They see following Jesus as a killjoy. They see, him as, they see following Jesus as giving up all their freedom. If I follow Jesus, they're going to give up more freedom. So they see it that way, right? And yet we understand who have been transformed and given a new heart by the grace of God that there is no more freedom. There's no one is more free to enjoy the blessings of this life than those who willingly place themselves inside the fence of God's commandments. Wow, what a statement that will bring all kinds of debate, right? But I mean that. No one knows freedom, true freedom, like the person who willingly places themselves behind the fence of God's good commands. And only believers whose hearts have been changed can even understand that statement. But I'm going to help us maybe understand it a little more. When I was younger, I'm so old now I can't even begin to look back at my age and see what age I might have been, but I'm kidding. I, I don't know. I was probably 11 years old. I had a chihuahua. I really don't like chihuahuas now, but... I had this chihuahua poodle mix, so that was bearable. It wasn't a skinny, scrawny, skinless chihuahua that they looked like aliens. I'm kidding, if you have a chihuahua. But this one was a, this was a chihuahua poodle mix. Furry, curly hair all over. So I could manage. Her, her name was Julie. It's true. Anyway. <laughs> We had a fenced-in yard, and my little Julie ran around all around that yard, and her bark, that's another reason I don't like chihuahuas, right? <coughs> right all the time. <coughs> Everywhere, barking up down the fence. But the point is, her heart was not sanctified. <laughs> so she felt like, man, this fence is cramping my style. It's th so that, you know, if you speak Chihuahuanese, you know what she was saying. <laughs> Running up down the fence, bah, 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 bah. I want to be free. Bah, 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 bah. I want to do my own thing. Uh, just up and down, just all ready to be free, tired of I'm sick of these rules. I'm sick of these boundaries. I'm sick of this. I want to be my, I want to be free. Now, on the outside of the fence looking in were two giant pit bulls. And they also wanted her freedom. <laughs> but for other reasons, of course, right? But my point being, she was, just, just, just in a general sense here, where was she the most free to enjoy her life? Within the boundaries of the fence or outside the boundaries? She was safer and more free to enjoy her life inside. Now, I know that all analogies break down somewhere, folks, but here's what we learn from God's word is that we must understand that only, we're never going to have that heart, folks, that willingly says, I will obey God's commands. It's just not going to happen. We're always going to be barking and wanting freedom. That's, that's our sinful nature. But when our hearts have been changed, one great evidence that your heart has been truly changed by the gospel and by the grace of God is that now you begin to love his commandments. And you begin to place yourself within the safety of his fences that were given 
us for our thriving and genuine joy. But that only comes when we pray, God, change my desires by your grace. Save me from myself, my sin, my arrogance. Transform me by the grace of the gospel that Jesus becomes altogether lovely, your commandments become sweet, and my days are joy-filled in this life. That's what it means to have revival, if you will. That's what we need to be praying for, folks. My prayer is that God will truly bring revival to Grace Covenant Church. And that doesn't look like a lot of people showing up and getting new buildings or, or whatever. That's not it. May we ask him genuinely from our hearts to change our hearts. That we'll be done with the taste of sin. That it will no longer taste good, but it will repulse us. And yet we will hunger and thirst for his righteousness. Only he can do that for us. We must ask. Seek him. Change my heart, Father. And he promised, I will put a new heart. And I will cause you to keep my commands. For my glory. That's what he's telling us. Let's take a minute as we um, prepare to respond in song. As the band's coming forward, um, I will ask you to take a moment. We don't normally do this, but I just want us to do this. As we've gathered here in the house of God, we've just heard the preaching of God's word, and, and by the Spirit's leading, hopefully you have been led to surrender to Christ. So I want to just ask us to take a few minutes. You can actually kneel if you want. If you can't kneel, that's fine. But I want us to be serious, just for a moment, just for a few moments here. And let's be honest with God and beg him to truly transform our hearts. Give us a true love for his, his commands. Rearrange our whole lives completely. It will be messy, possibly. It doesn't matter. We are at the point of saying, God, your word is truth. And there's going to be a division here. There'll be those who believe that this is God's word and you're willing to say, God, change me. Whatever that means. Whoever that offends. What? I don't care, Lord. You are the one that can change me and become my master. And I want to be your slave, obeying your commands and benefit from all the joy that comes with that and peace. So just take a moment right now. Just bow your heads. I'll close in prayer in just a moment. But let us keep it quiet here and let's just cry out to God that he change our hearts.